This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, debate number two is in the books, hosted by CNN. Personally, folks, I was bored by it all. And I'm thinking that as time goes on, the American people are going to start to feel the same way. Nothing new is coming out of this. You know, the first debate is always the most exciting. It's the first time you get to see all the candidates together on one stage talking about something or other. And when you start to get into debate number two and number three, and it's just like the presidential debates as well, the first one gets the best ratings and has, generates the most buzz, and then from there it kind of tapers off. Then they, in the political crowd, politicals, the pundits, it's all about who won, who lost, uh, give them a grade, and, well, I, I don't know, unless you have a score sheet, who you think won is left to the beholder. Okay, if you're a supporter of... Any of the candidates you think your candidate won. But if you don't keep score, I don't know how you can tell who won. Who performed well, you might be able to answer, and that's about it. But I'll tell you what's lacking from this Republican field except for one candidate. And by the way, disclaimer here, this is not an endorsement for Donald Trump, what I'm about to say. But what's lacking, and the reason why I said I'm becoming bored by it all, is only one candidate has expressed a vision for America. What's the name of Donald Trump's campaign? Make America Great Again. That's a vision. None of the other candidates have expressed any vision for the country. That's why they're behind Donald Trump right now. And they haven't been able to figure this out. We need a vision for America. That's what Ronald Reagan did. He painted a picture of America when he ran for the President of the United States and all throughout his presidency, that shining city on a hill. He painted a picture, vision. Here's the definition. I'm reading right from the dictionary. The ability to think about or plan the future with imagination or wisdom. Who has done that? The closest person that has gotten to it is Donald Trump with his campaign slogan. Make America Great Again is a plan for the future with imagination. I don't know how much wisdom is there, but with imagination. People can see that. When he makes that statement, and he says it everywhere he goes, you can see that. That's why they call it, or I call it, vision. Vision is something you can see. You can see America being great again. No one else has done that. What is Jeb Bush's vision for America? What is Ted Cruz's vision for America? What is Carly Fiorina's vision for America? What's Rand Paul's vision for America? What's Chris Christie, Kasich, on and on and on? None of them have stated or created a vision for America that can get the American people to think about the future with imagination. And they wonder why they're trailing Donald Trump in the polls. And and I don't know that Trump is handling his vision statement well, but he repeats it everywhere he goes because you can see it. You can feel it. There's imagination. You use your imagination. You can feel America being great again because you know At one time we were. 
And you can see it again. Everybody else talks about policy. When Ted Cruz, and I like these guys, by the way, he talks about immigration. That's policy. Trump talks about it too, but he already painted his vision so then he can go into how we're going to get there. Once you paint the picture and you give people, the American people, a picture of what America will look like in the future using their imagination, you're going to resonate. You're going to resonate. People like to think about and plan for the future. But the future has to look bright. And right now it looks bleak. So when Marco, Marco Rubio, what's his vision for America? I don't know what it is. And if any of you out there think that I'm wrong on this and, and can paint that vision for these candidates, do it for me on Twitter, at Sheriff Clark, by the way, C-L-A-R-K-E. You can follow me on Twitter. Tell me, because I'm not seeing it. And if they, if you think your candidate is doing that, and I'm not seeing it, and the rest of America isn't seeing it, apparently they're not if you look at the poll numbers, then they're not communicating their vision very well. Why do you think they call Ronald Reagan the great communicator? You have to not only have a vision for America, you must communicate that vision so that the American people can see it, can feel it, can use their imagination that will make America great again. And it's easy to do with, with Trump's slogan. Just his campaign slogan, make America great again. And every time he opens his mouth, he says, we're going to make America great again. No one else does that. Rand Paul talks about, I'm going to get rid of the tax code. That's not vision. That's policy. Don't these guys know the difference between vision and policy? You know, and I could go through the entire list of candidates on the Republican side. There's no vision. And until somebody in this group, I mean, Jeb Bush, you know, he, he says, well, uh, I'm not going to be my brother. That's not vision. I'm going to be very different from my brother and my dad. I'm my own person. Folks, that's not vision. What is your vision, Jeb? You know, when people say about Jeff, he has no energy. Really, that's what they're saying. Because when you have vision, it's energetic. It's catchy. It's, it's inspiring. <laughs> none of these people, except for Donald Trump's campaign slogan, none of them have any vision. I think that's the number one thing missing from everybody in this field. I mean, the presidency in 2016 is there for the taking, but I'll tell you what, the American people aren't just going to hand it over to the you know, um, least best candidate. And you can say anything you want about Barack Obama. He had vision. We didn't know his policies were going to be destructive. He captivated America. And what we did was we criticized him. We on the right, but, well, he just gives a good speech. That's vision. Somebody on the Republican side, get out there and give a good speech. Time is running short. 
for anybody in this race that's lagging. Scott Walker, a friend of mine. But that doesn't matter. I'm not going to let that primer bias my comments about him. What's his vision? I mean, somebody tell me, please, because maybe I'm missing something. You know, I could be wrong here. But I'll tell you what, if I'm not, with my imagination, if I can't see it, well, then they're not doing a very good job of communicating. Because when you have vision, you can feel it. People can feel it. So until that happens, this is going to be a long, slogging, drawn out. That was just mudslinging Wednesday night. That's all it was. Oh, my wife, you said something about You offended my wife. Oh, you offended my looks. Well, you you went uh, bankrupt on casinos. and That's mudslinging. And I know that's part of a political campaign. I'm not against that. But there was an opportunity there for somebody to express a vision for America. And they didn't do it. So now I guess we'll wait for the next debate opportunity. This is amazing. The Blaze Radio Network, on demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Find more on demand at theblaze.com slash radio. Jay Severin. These were the five keys to last night's debate. Now, whether or not we agree on the outcome, did Trump did Trump end up ahead or behind? Did Carson gain or lose in his crucial second place race against Trump? Was conservatism and experience buried or revived? We may disagree on the answer to those things. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. I want you to remember these two names as we go through the next segment. Jamila Bolden and Sierra Guyton. Those names might not ring a bell off the top of your head. I'm not suggesting they should. Uh, For me, they do, but then I'm day-to-day in law enforcement, criminal justice. And those are going to be examples I'm going to use as I go through this next segment that I've been promising you uh, probably since the time I started these podcasts, that we would get into this issue of criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, prison reform, depending on how the left wants to label it at that time. The left has been driving this. They've been defining this issue, framing the issue. They've inserted lies, myths, false statistics uh, into the equation to hoodwink the general population And what's interesting is it's capturing the uh, attention of uh, many Republicans on Capitol Hill and in state legislators, state legislatures, uh, in terms of going soft on crime. That's what this is. This whole concept of criminal justice reform, it just normalizes criminal behavior. That's really all it does. Takes what society has said uh, we're not going to put up with in terms of behavior or lifestyle choices. And it now normalizes them and makes it okay. Um, it's really a shame because, you know, conservatives slash Republicans, and those are two different people, you know that. But they've always been sticklers for law and order, um, safe streets, tough on crime, and they've always pursued those 
uh, initiatives and funded those initiatives at the local level from Washington with grants and with uh, federal prosecution. But I believe that issue is slipping away from them as well, as many of them are getting on this bandwagon. And I think this is very dangerous. I think it's a huge mistake. I've heard Rand Paul say that he's uh, in favor of this sort of thing. I've heard Ted Cruz. Remember, there are no sacred cars, uh, sacred cows on the uh, uh, the people's sheriff. If I see somebody who's wandering off the reservation as a conservative, I'm just going to point it out. Uh, and I've heard others uh, as well on the Republican side. I mean, we know what the Democrats stand for, right? I mean, this whole idea, this inane idea of, of prison reform, criminal justice reform, uh, is supported by the NAACP, the ACLU, President Obama, the mainstream media. What does that tell you? That should be an instant red flag to any Republican on Capitol Hill and to any conservative. That anything in the, the, the line of law and order, which the Democrats have never been strong about, about but anything on, 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 on law and order that has to do with the Democrats is, is going to be a red herring. All right, and you're going to be hoodwinked. And there aren't too many issues anymore, uh, sadly, that the Republicans, at least on Capitol Hill, um, that they own anymore. You know, military superiority, they used to own that issue. Not so much anymore. They've been behind approving uh, spending bills that have uh, dangerously reduced our military uh, superiority capability. Republicans have voted for those measures. Uh, Think about stuff like lower taxes. Republicans don't own that issue anymore. They're the ones that went along with ending the Bush-era tax cuts and raised taxes. How about smaller government? They don't own that issue anymore. You know, all these things that used to be the sole province of of conservatism. And I'm not saying it's not that these aren't principles of conservatism anymore, because they are, but the Republicans have abandoned these these things, and I think that they're letting go of one of the few uh, that they had left, and this was... um, the issue of uh, criminal justice, crime, safe streets, safe neighborhoods. And it's like I said, it's going to have a devastating effect, not just in the American ghetto. They're going to see it first. As a matter of fact, they're already seeing it. Those names I mentioned at the top of this segment are examples of that. I'll get into that uh, a little bit later. But if anybody thinks that the rise in crime and violence in our major urban centers uh, is not connected to these failed and ain't soft on crime uh, criminal justice initiatives along with this, this, uh, this war on police. And you have to have your head in the sand. The two go hand in hand. But one of the things that the, the left is good at, as you know, in framing the issue, is they... They frame this around some wonderfully sounding language. And here's, here's some of the language that they use for criminal justice reform. Okay, they call it smart on crime. No, it is dumb on crime and it is dangerous on crime. Here's another thing that they like to say. Alternatives to incarceration. We're looking for alternatives to incarceration. Folks, there are no alternatives to incarceration except for rising crime. That is an alternative to incarceration. Here's another one. Community justice reform or community justice initiatives. Right? 
you know, let's solve this in the community. Something other than using jails and prisons. Jails and prisons are a very effective crime control tool and will always have to be used to preserve civil society. It just stands to reason. If people want to go out and violate society's rules, and I'm talking about violent crime. That's another thing, uh, one of the myths that they perpetrate, the nonviolent offender. But if we're going to be effective, and they like to point out that during the 80s and 90s and part of the early 2000s when crime was at an all-time low, we had so many people locked up. Duh. I mean, are they that stupid? The reason why crime and violence went on these record lows during the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s is because finally, finally, we said as a society, we're not going to put up with this anymore. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. We're going to identify those career criminals. We're going to arrest them. We're going to adjudicate them, give them due process. And then when they're convicted, we're going to sentence them to the longest period of time allowable by law. It sent a different message to the criminal element. That's why we experienced record lows in crime and violence. It's a very elementary concept. You lock away the people who are committing the crimes, and the crime levels will be reduced. It's pretty simple logic. If then, remember that if then model? If you lock up the dangerous career perpetrators of crime and violence, then you will see fewer instances of that activity and that behavior. So one of the other things that the left is good at doing in this whole criminal justice reform, and that's, it's inappropriately named, by the way, Criminal justice reform. We don't need to reform the criminal justice system. But anyway, they, there's a lot of myths that they use, that they perpetrate to fool the unsuspecting, non-critical thinker who just kind of, you know, hears the propaganda and says, well, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That sounds nice. That sounds humane. Why don't we do that? Here are some of the myths that they like to perpetrate in terms of criminal justice reform. Black male mass incarceration, it's a myth. The myth of the nonviolent offender in jail and prisons, another myth. Here's another one. I love this one. We can achieve a goal of locking up fewer criminals, making communities safer, and saving money. I mean, do you believe that nonsense? And here's another one. That the criminal justice system is inherently racist and biased against black males. Another lie. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. You know, take a relatively small country. Is Belgium still Belgium if it allows a half a million Muslim refugees and migrants into the country over the next 12 months? And within 20 years, they're projected to be a majority in that country. Well, at some point, does it cease to be the country that it is if you bring in enough people from somewhere else who don't share the cultures, traditions, and values of that polity? 
Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. So let's take a look at how the left, President Obama, and these other uh, idiots who are supporting this criminal justice reform. Let's listen how they frame the issue. President Obama was speaking at the uh, annual NAACP convention this past summer. And uh, here's what he had to say in part in his speech. In an emphatic and sometimes moving speech, the president laid out some of the outrageous statistics that reformers have been citing for years. Our prison population of 2.2 million has more than quadrupled since 1980, even though crime has been declining for two decades. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but houses nearly a quarter of its prisoners. Blacks and Latinos represent about 30% of the nation's population, but almost 60% of its prisoners. The result, said Obama, is a system that wastes billions of dollars a year and prevents too many people, especially minority men, from contributing to society, the economy, and their children's lives. Mass incarceration makes our country worse off, he said, and we need to do something about it. Obama's bluntness was bracing, but as he had made these statements, he also reported one of the most enduring myths of criminal justice reform. Quote, over the last few decades, we have locked up more and more nonviolent drug offenders than ever before for longer and longer uh, periods of time, the president said. And that is the real reason our prison population is so high. Close quote. It's simply not true that the growth of the prison population is mainly due to the sentencing of nonviolent drug offenders. This is by Gillett Edelman, taken from the uh, New Yorker. So you see what I mean? They go around and they have framed this thing to incite sympathy. Oh, we're taking black men away from society where they can't be contributing members. First of all, they aren't contributing any, any, anyway. They are doing nothing but taking away from society, sucking things out of society through crime and violence, taking property at, at gunpoint, threatening and intimidating their neighbors and friends. What contribution is he talking about? They are exploiting civil society. And, and this part here really gets me. And we're taking the way, away from their contribution to the lives of their children. Does he realize that we have a 70% birth rate with uninvolved fathers? Children born into single parent and raised by a single mom? 70% of black kids are born out of wedlock. If these black men were actively and positively engaged in the lives of their children, you as a parent know they would not have time for running around these rummies, running the streets till all hours of the night, getting high, abusing alcohol, basically carousing. Because their parenting would take all the energy out of them. They would just want to sleep at night. And here Obama is talking to the NAACP, and they're probably all nodding their heads. Many of them knowing that these guys aren't involved in their children's lives. 
So here's what Daniel Horwitz had to say about it, and this is taken from the Conservative Review. At a time when unelected judges are remaking our society in so many ways, including mandating the release of violent criminal aliens into our community, why on earth would we want to hand Obama the keys, or these judges, the keys to sentencing, especially after Obama has placed 30% of the federal bench, replaced 30% of the federal bench, with bleeding heart post-constitutional activists? With the hands of law enforcement literally tied to even execute basic arrests, do we need to let out a torrent of criminals who have a high recidivism rate? According to a report released last year by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 76.9% of drug offenders who were released from prison in 30 states from 2005 to 2010 were arrested again within five years. Remember when Obama took the unprecedented step of speaking at a federal prison in July? He was not just empathizing with those convicted of drug offenses. He clearly had an agenda to dismantle law enforcement, as Senator Ted Cruz has alleged. And the release of the 46 mainly major drug dealers, major drug dealers, did you catch that? Was just a down payment on the plan. Promoting this agenda during the Obama presidency is irresponsible at best. Now is not the time to be given Obama tailwinds and dismantling tougher sentencing. Now is the time to investigate the racial bias of the United States Department of Justice, Obama's war on police, and its relation to the appalling spike in both random violent crime and targeted killings of police. That would represent true criminal justice reform. The issue of law and order can truly be said to be a silent majority issue. Living just outside of Baltimore, I've spoken to a number of Democrat neighbors, and they are all appalled at the rioting, breakdown in enforcement, and treatment of the police. For Republicans and even some conservatives to push more leniencies, especially without a commensurate zeal to strengthen efforts against a growing wave of violent crime, is as out of touch as our desire to push amnesty. Daniel Horowitz gets it. That was very eloquently put, and he wasn't even trying to be eloquent. Just connect the dots. And and the Republicans on the Hill who were in favor of this and not pushing back, you have to wonder, do they see what Daniel Horowitz sees? Or are they that out of touch? You talk about, in this uh, presidential race, especially on the Republican side, an issue that that somebody could seize on and just snatch it. It's sitting up there like a 15-point buck for anybody who's a deer hunter. And it's staring them right in the face, just waiting to be taken. Taken as their own, because this is what the American people at ground level are thinking about. They are watching this dismantling of law enforcement. They are watching this bashing of the American police officer. They are watching these rising violent crime rates. And they're worried about it. But then again, and you've heard me say this, it's often, you know, that I I think that these presidential contenders are out of touch with the rest of society, the rest of America. You know, they have their little talking points and they have their focus group materials and their, you know, well, here's what you say today. And and, and they just need to throw that stuff away and just talk to the American people. American people 
are worried about this rising crime because it, it is spreading. It is not, you may have heard me say this before, crime is like water. It seeks its own level. You're only going to hold it back for so long. You can put up all the sandbags you want. You can try to put a, a um, you know, a barrier around the ghetto and think, well, we'll just keep it, you know, contained. You don't contain crime. It seeks its own level. We're a mobile society now. And because of that, individuals can get in a car, drive out to an area that is generally safe, commit mayhem, and drive back. And that's what's happening all across America. It's coming to a city near you. And that's why you need to pay attention to this issue and you need to push back and you need to call your congressman or your congresswoman and your senator and demand them, demand of them to get off this wagon of criminal justice reform and tell them you're going to hold them accountable every time somebody's killed who's the recipient or the benefactor of one of these crazy initiatives, community corrections, alternatives to incarceration. You're going to make them pay with votes. This is that important. And this has been underway for quite some time now. The left is very stealthy. This didn't just start, folks. This has been going on for quite some time, and we're going to get into some examples of what I'm talking about. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. He speaks in these non sequiturs. Right. And it's really irritating to me, and I guess his, his supporters must love it. But he'll just one non-related thought after another. He's sort of like the Twitter of human beings. Yeah, he kind of is. It's kind of like really short, unrelated phrases yeah. that don't actually mean anything. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Here's some things that you can do to counter. This is what you're going to hear if you call your congressman or congresswoman or uh, your senator. They're going to throw out this, you know, these these faulty statistics or misuse of statistics. When they say that the United States, United States spends $80 billion a year in corrections, throw this at them. Do you know what the true cost of crime is? And they'll say no because they don't. According to a RAND study, I have it right in front of me here, it's 2010. It's called In Broad Daylight if you want to Google that. The cost of crime in America is $300 billion. Let me say that again. The cost of crime, and here's what that is. Lost quality of life, lost productivity at work or at home, General fear, lost use of community spaces where people are afraid to go out on the street, psychological effects, medical treatment, things like burial for murder, and it includes murder, rape, aggravated assault, robbery, burglary, motor vehicle theft, and larceny. $300 billion. Crime costs Americans a year. A year. So in other words... It's about four times as much 
is our incarceration rate. So I would say if we incarcerate more people, we can drive down this cost to Americans of $300 billion a year in terms of the true cost of crime. Fewer people murdered, fewer women uh, raped, fewer people assaulted, fewer people robbed, fewer homes burglarized, fewer people uh, who have their cars stolen, and, and fewer people who uh, are victimized by theft, by locking more people up. And when I give you this nonsensical crap, you know, that we have 2.2 million uh, people locked up more than any place else in the world. Well, first of all, that is only seven-tenths of the U.S. population. Seven-tenths. Those are numbers so small we shouldn't even be talking about this. The other thing that you can tell them is this. The reason why other countries in the world don't have the uh, amount of people locked up that we have, because they don't put up with crime early on. They don't have a revolving door justice system. They make it clear from the very beginning, from very early in life, that when you commit these sorts of crimes, you're going to pay dearly. There are no second chance programs. There are no alternatives to incarceration. There are no community corrections. And so what happens is, People generally have a better respect for civil society and civil order and each other than we do here in the United States. That's what you tell them to counter that nonsense. Now, I want to take uh, the rest of the program here talking about another article I came across, Crime and Consequences, sponsored by the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. And this one is by... Um, Bill Otis. And we'll go through it, and I'll, I'll throw in some comments of my own here. One thing my father taught me was to thank God for your opponents. As usual, he was right. My opponents in the sentencing reform battle, those favoring mass sentencing reduction and the additional crime that it is certain to come with it, have been shrewd up to now and being relatively quiet about the fact they favor releasing killers, rapists, and muggers of all sorts, along with the fabled low-level nonviolent offender. You see what I mean? It's a myth. They're really after opening up the prison doors and letting everybody out. Back to the article. But giddy and careless, with new momentum as more and more Republicans allow themselves to be bull-rushed into sentencing reform, the other side has prematurely tipped its hand. It was never a, a, just about low-level nonviolent offenders. That was the head fake. It was about creating a new violent crime wave in America, something that is already happening as serious policing has come under attack. And California's Prop 14, dumbing down of the criminal code, has started to do its work. Hat tip to Doug Berman for putting up two op-eds that spell it out. There were a couple of lines in each that immediately stood out. From the L.A. Times op-ed, I had to chuckle at this one. Here's what that op-ed said. If the president and reformers hope to radically reduce the number of people in American prisons and address glaring disparities in criminal justice, focusing narrowly on nonviolent drug offenses won't get them very far. The truth is that prosecution for violent crimes and not prosecution for drug possession and sales is the primary engine of mass incarceration in this country. That's the guy who favors his criminal justice reform, but he's honest. He goes, you know, there aren't any nonviolent offenders locked up in prison, and if we really want to reduce the prison roles, we're going to have to release Killers, rapists, muggers, burglars, auto thieves, on and on and on. He just comes out and says it. 
Back to the article. Wow, you could have fooled me. For what I've been seeing the last 8,000 or so sentencing reform advocacy pieces, the problem is that we've been filling the prisons with 19-year-old kids caught smoking a joint. Guess not. Conceptualizing non-violent drug offenders as somehow qualitatively different from their other offenders creates a false distinction. Many crimes labeled violent under our criminal code are either directly motivated by drug addiction or directly related to drug sales or possession. Translation, if someone cracks your skull with a tire iron to get money for his next fix, this is not qualitatively different from really hacking your checking account. You learn something new on the Internet every day. And if you're thinking this stuff may have been written by a UC Berkeley law professor, you're right. The second op-ed, this one from the Washington Post, titles itself, In an exercise of unwise but admirable candor, for true penal reform, focus on the violent offenders. That's the title of this op-ed in the Washington Post. This quite revealing item here is the word, the use of the word focus. It's not merely that an occasional strong arm or thug might get the benefit of sentence reform here and there. It's that reform should focus on them. Sentencing reformers have had this plan for a good long while, but now anticipating legislative victory, or failing that, a pardon fest from a politically unaccountable president, have decided to be more honest about them. I share their desire for more candor, which shows up in even greater measures in the post, uh, Washington Post piece. A particular note is this observation. Now to be clear, not all violent offenses are especially harmful. This is especially true if they happen to be someone else. Remember those names I talked about at the beginning here? Sierra Guyton? Jamela Bolden, those are somebody else's kids. Those are two young girls. Sierra Guyton was 10, Jamila Bolden was 9. Jamila Bolden was in her home in St. Louis, Missouri this summer doing her homework when some drive-by idiot fired shots into the house and killed her. The goof who they uh, uh, caught and, and charged and arrested and charged with this offense is a career criminal who was let out on one of these inane ideas. He was sentenced to 10 years for an armed robbery, and the judge thought uh, community corrections would be better, so he put him back into society. The guy armed himself and shot and killed a 9-year-old girl, someone else's kid. Sierra Guyton, the same thing. Playing on a playground last summer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my hometown, like any other kid in the summer, when two guys got into a shootout to settle an old score, shot her in the head and killed her. A 10-year-old. Both of them were the recipients of these inane, soft-on-crime initiatives, alternatives to incarceration. They both had been convicted of major felonies. Both had long career criminal histories, but were put back into the community. You see, it's someone else's kid. So why should someone on the Hill worry about it? It wasn't their kid. It isn't any of these reform minded people's kids. It wasn't Obama's daughter that was shot and killed. This isn't any of these Republicans. This is how crazy this is. This is how heartless this is. This is how discriminatory this is. Those were two black girls. But I guess that's okay, you know, because we got to be soft on crime so that people think we're nice. We're going to talk about this as time goes on because this is just going to continue to rear its ugly head. Thanks for joining me. I'll be here next week.
God bless you. David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network.